Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about um, various forms of visual art. And we're going to sort of start this show with a discussion of issues that have been facing the special effects industry in movies, specifically. Um, There were a couple of articles and exposés that came out last summer about the industry and sort of exploring the idea of why do all these movies kind of not look right? You know, there are fans have complaints about the way their big comic book extravaganzas look and critics have complaints about the way they all kind of look the same and it can be hard to make out what's actually going on when everything is riddled in special effects lasers and nothing's actually being done in a practical way and as is often the case with subjects we explore on punching out the answer of course boils down to the way in which the work actually happens isn't that right here Yeah, uh, turns out that because humans do not actually have the ability to shoot pew-pew giant space lasers out of their hands, that has to be done by somebody, usually somebody who is underpaid, burned out, has apparently moved uh, across multiple countries at this point, and very often is hamstrung in being properly rewarded for their work both by labor laws and by studio practices that prevent them from identifying their work as their own. And, you know, what's what's particularly offensive to me is that now we've gotten to the point, and, and I think this has only happened once and hopefully it will never happen again, but you mentioned critics and fans, but in at least one notable case, Taika Waititi and Tessa Thompson felt the need to make fun of the VFX houses that worked on their own film, which is a level of I mean, obviously, you know, they, they, it's Taika, so there were no racial slurs or homophobic content or anything like that. But when, controlling for that, that's a level of offensive I didn't know I could be angry at with a director or producer or somebody like that. You expect that out of money men and billionaires and things like that. You don't expect that out of somebody who's made their whole career about their creativity and quirkiness and so on. But what that should tell us is, that clearly, even the people who work on the production side of the movies, what's left of it at this point, feel that they're allowed to join in the fun at this point. Yeah, and thankfully, the articles that have this, you know, explore this subject are not doing so from the angle of why does everything kind of look like crap. It's from the angle of well, no, really, what's going on. Uh, The Defector article in particular really goes into the process of the various things that these artists, and that's what they are, are actually tasked with. You know, the term CGI gets used to describe a lot of the special effects that are done nowadays, uh, computer-generated imagery, but it's not really computer-generated. It is a person that is working on a computer to make that laser go off that explosion happen in a way that doesn't require actually having an explosion, which is how movies of old would have done it to quote a bit from the article. uh, Artists are often quote tasked with making beauty fixes. Some actors have digital fixes to their hair among many of their other physical features written into their contracts. Other actors quite literally won't look the part. Quote, we fixed faces all the time, one technician said. There was one old Harrison Ford project where they made him up, but we had to remove his double chin. He was old and flabby, and so we gave him a facelift. It was no big deal. It was just funny. But it sort of illustrates the point of, like, that's something that has to happen on 
every frame of the movie. That's a process that Defector article leads off of. And this is um, just to give readers context. The headline is Inside Hollywood's Visual Effects Crisis by Drew McGarry. It's from last August. Um, it leads off with an anecdote about one of the Marvel movies and, you know, the task of making Scarlett Johansson's wig blend into the background without having obvious signs of it being a green screen because so much of these movies are shot on green screens now. They're not green anymore. That's part of the problem. It gets shouted out in, I want to say it's also the Defector article, but it might be one of the other ones, that a lot of the time the producers and directors just choose a backdrop color and no one knows why. And then the (laughs) VFX studios have to figure out how to work with that when very often the same color is present in the costume or hair or whatever that the actors uh, have in front of it. Also, by the way, Ryan, it's been nice knowing you. I expect any minute now Harrison Ford may or may not operate aircraft near your apartment. Very niche joke, that one. You know, these movies are such big productions. The budgets extend into the hundreds of millions of dollars. But, you know, despite that fact, the people making them happen in a very real way are, you know, as you might expect as a listener of Punching Out, being shortchanged in this process. You know, uh, the Defector article describes a process where, like, they're given last minute, literally last minute changes to make on a scene that once looked one way and now has to look entirely different. There's a disjointedness to the process where the artists aren't sure what they are making and the actors who are acting in the scene beforehand, before post-production, don't know what the scene will look like when it happens. And that's, I mean, as a viewer, it's not good. But if you're an artist who is, you know, somebody who wants to actually make a good product, it's not good for you either, is it? No, I'd say generally it's not. Um, the last minute adjustments too are are pretty famous. There's been cases where a movie's been released and then the production company has been told, hey, you actually need to fix this. The most famous probably is the cat buttholes from uh, Cats and how that had to be edited. I don't know if I can say that. The cat behinds. From I think buttholes is allowed by the, the cat FCC. Recta. They did, gosh, they did like patch that movie. Yeah, after it was released. Wasn't that not the only body part that they had to um, work on in Cats? I seem to remember someone's um, prodigiousness needing to be uh, changed. Boy, remember that movie, huh? That's no, I don't. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I had no, I haven't seen. I I saw it though. I honestly kind of enjoyed it because it was so bad, so bad. What bothers me here is that as these articles revealed, and this time I think I think I am quoting from a Gizmodo article. This one is also from last August. It is by Linda Codega. The article is called Abuse of VFX Artists is Ruining the Movies, which is an extremely accurate headline. To me, the important part here is uh, finding out that Cats was not the first time that had happened because the first Doctor Strange movie was worked on after it had been released in the United Kingdom. When you've, as you said, when you're getting to the point that you're patching movies, I mean, I was going to make a crack here about downloadable content, but... Uh, we're pretty much getting there, too, with studios now just memory-holding entire seasons of shows and putting them behind all sorts of barriers or just taking them off and what you know is going to be a money grab years down the line. So, yeah, pretty much everything is now horse armor. Great job. It's funny that that's the reference you make because I was about to say that this reminds me of discussions we've had about the video game industry where crunch is so rampant and like actually getting these games out the door and, you know, onto store shelves or onto digital shelves nowadays is something that is being worked on right through the last week and well after the game comes out. Uh, Patches are not uncommon in video games the way that they are in movies. They've been 
a thing for decades, but they are more common nowadays because the scope of games has increased and the amount of people working on them has increased. So inevitably, the amount of glitches and errors and little issues is going to increase. There's a bit in this uh, defector article um, that I want to quote from here. One detail from our discussion of the video game industry was how workers, if they left a company, wouldn't appear in the credits of a game. They wouldn't get literally credited for their work. And that's something that you're starting to see in a way in these big Hollywood productions, though due to unionization and sort of a larger culture around credits in that industry, it's not quite the same. Um, To quote from this Defector article, effects get recycled the same way that franchise characters do, and perhaps more often. One writer slash director advises you to notice the sky the next time you watch a sci-fi show or film because, quote, that is most likely pulled from some other asset that they're compositing and building from. And when Marvel filmed its Moon Knight series for Disney+, Plus, one show coordinator told Defector that star Oscar Isaac was nowhere near any of the onset footage of the title character that they worked on. Instead, they worked with a digitally costumed Moon Knight asset that had been passed on to them by another effects house. These things are being recycled now, used from one show to the next, because everything is its own franchise, its own cinematic universe. And the article goes on to note that Artists are, quote, often lucky if they get a quick time of their work to show prospective employers. One artist told Defector that many of them are forced to pirate their own work off the internet just so they have something to show off alongside their resume. That's awesome. That's great. There's a pervasive problem here that multiple of the sources that we have for this episode came up in in several of them, which is that the artists like a lot of the other people that we cover on this show are the only pressure point that is remotely movable because the studios making the films are not Marvel and Pixar are among others, because those are two of the heaviest hitters are absolute, just money printing machines that cannot be stopped at this point. They, they, they don't lose money no matter Frankly, they could put literal human excrement on camera for two hours and it would probably still make a profit. And I mean in the nine figures. So when that's the level of it's not trust, but the level of like default revenue that you have, there's no moving that. So they're not going to change. The people founding VFX studios are not going to change because they're bosses and bosses don't ever do anything for their workers without being made to. So all you've got left is the artists. And in several of the articles, they talk about how the VFX houses and the production studios and so on basically say, yeah, this sucks, but what else are you going to do? Where else are you going to find work? There's You have no other options. And again, this seems very similar to every other sector of workers we cover where Ultimately, it all comes down to the people with the least power in the equation who, frankly, should be able to stop things from moving on. I mean, if you have to ship, you know, I don't know, the next what's a superhero that's getting, I don't know, a Scarlet Witch movie or whatever with half of the thing unfinished, that might be the kind of thing that would make fans and critics say, oh, 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 my God, this really is a huge problem. But they can't do that because there's so many people invested in pushing them down. There's so much weight on them. And after a while, what this results in is, as I think this is again from the Gizmodo article, mental illness, suicide, burnout, alcoholism, all these things happen because you can't function under that kind of pressure. We know this from other industries. We know this from talking about restaurant workers. We know this from talking about healthcare workers. We know this from talking about teachers. We know this from talking about it. basically any industry where it's all client service. And in the entertainment field, it's particularly noticeable because, frankly, a ton of the people who are going to be listening to this episode and are you know sharing how VFX artists are so screwed and everything are also all going to fill seats for all of these movies. So there comes a point at which it's like, 
and and I'm not blaming them for that. God knows we all need entertainment at this point, but there's a reason that Marvel or whoever and that your boss at the VFX house can push down that hard on you. And that's because they know what's waiting on the other end. They know the critique that they're going to get on the other end and they know how much that's going to matter. I want to quote a bit from the Gizmodo article and quote from some of the workers affected here. Um, They mentioned a couple people by first name only without last name for reasons that should be obvious, but um, quoting here, Hector recalled that during the last Marvel project he worked on, quote, from the very first day on the project up until we delivered the shots, we were working overtime and weekends. It was just months of literally being nailed to my desk. Continuing on here, uh, Sam says, quote, I didn't have a day off for five weeks, and those were not eight-hour days. They were 10-plus-hour days, recalling his experience working on a Marvel show. And that was because they did a reshoot a month before the show was due. So we got shots in December for a show that was due at the end of January. The, the process inevitably results in overworking the people at this sort of back end of it, because I, I don't know why, why. Why do you think it is that these are the people getting the short end of the stick? I think it's part because so many people don't understand how computers work and how like technology has progressed to such a point that we really believe that anything is possible because we have computers to do it. And so there's not a whole lot of thought behind how, and and I think the defector article says this, uh, there's not a lot of thought behind how shots are put together and how, and what you would need in order to get the end result that you're doing it because there's such a strong belief in what computers can do. Not not artists, it's the computers that are doing it. Because, you know, I see that in my daily life. I see people who just think, oh, well, we should be able to do this because computers or this this thing that I want, it should just exist because computers. And And that's way worse when you're talking about billions of dollars on the line and a production deadline and a schedule set, you know, years in advance by some, I I don't think we can call Kevin, what's his face, a supervillain, but he might be approaching that level. Marvel guy. Um, Kevin Feige? Kevin Feige. Yeah, Kevin Feige. I think he's like approaching supervillain levels of like masterminding our culture. And I like Marvel movies, so I can say that. But people just don't think and they assume that it can just be done. And that puts so much pressure on the people who are then expected to deliver. And you can't even go to that, go to the people who are telling you to do this and say, dude, what have you done? This isn't possible. This isn't how it works. You have to deliver because what else are you going to do? You can't say no. The Gizmodo article mentions the pervasive feeling that Everyone outside of the VFX house and even the the management teams within the houses, uh, which is the the term for VFX firms, seem to feel like there's a magic button that you just press and the scene just happens. Uh, More on magic buttons for art later. But there's this idea that everyone except for the people actually working on this stuff just expects it to get done. They, They think you press a button and this comes out. And when that is how we regard a process of artwork that is immensely complicated, and when people don't understand that, they're going to lay the blame at the feet of the workers, because that's what we've all been trained to do. It's, oh, this looks like crap. It's because the people invested in it didn't care enough. It's not because they don't get paid enough. It's not because they're not unionized, unlike Almost every other kind of uh, what's it called below the line is it uh, workers in in film and television and all that, and especially because a lot of the legislation and a lot of the contract language in Hollywood was written, frankly, in the boomer era where this wasn't a concern, and now it is, and it's going to take a minute for things to catch up. In that sense, some of it is just the inexorable passage of time. But some of it is also that studios know 
that this saves them a ton of money the same way that every restaurant knows going minimalistic with the exposed, you know, plumbing and whatever is easier to clean and all that. It saves them a ton of money because all of that can be offloaded to these houses and they're all getting sweetheart deals from local and state governments. They can travel around. They can shop around to find the country that will meet their needs for as cheaply as possible. And they can, in several of these articles it's mentioned, they can blacklist. If an effects house doesn't do what they're supposed to do or charges an overage fee or whatever, they can do that. And don't think I didn't notice that in multiple of the articles, there's somebody who speaks on condition of anonymity about how great it is to actually work with Marvel and how much better they are than other studios. One of whom goes from saying that they don't blacklist to, well, they might blacklist if you do this, which is... You rarely see the backpedal within two sentences, but uh, it was particularly gymnastically done in this circumstance. I, I think it's worth noting here that while we've been talking about like CGI art as sort of its own unique thing, and there are aspects of it that are unique, this sort of cost cutting and race to the bottom is, and you know, it's been with us through art even before computers were involved at all. Uh, I remember hearing about how the Simpsons, uh, the animation for the Simpsons is done by people working in a warehouse in South Korea, because that's the process that is required to make 22 episodes of a show over the course of a year. You, you know, using labor that is as cheap as possible to find is not unique to our modern era of, you know, computer generated imagery, but it's um, sort of, it hasn't gotten better. Yeah. But also like there's a tradition here in a way, you know, this is an evolution of the industry from. Yeah. It's the, it's not only has it not gotten better, it's an inevitable result of how we consume media and how it is produced in that we have to keep doing more all the time. Think of all the different streaming platforms there are now who each need a big flashy new show with their big flashy new actors in order to drive people to their platforms. Like why in the world should I subscribe to Paramount Plus as opposed to uh, Peacock? Are those the same? Are they different? No, they're very different. Okay, I I can't tell. You can tell how much I pay attention to it. Uh, (laughs) But, but... There's so much content out there and everybody has to have the biggest and brightest and and best. And that's just what's going to happen when you have a, an industry that has evolved to this point beyond just network television and theaters. It's just how it had to work and it's bad. And there needs to be some changes because I don't think anybody's having a good time. I don't think audiences are having a good time. I don't think production companies are having a good time. And the artists sure as hell are not having a good time. Yeah. And I think they they face some unique barriers, number one, in that even other below-the-line workers on film and so on, number one, let's be honest, a lot of them probably also think that you press a magic button and a scene just comes out on your computer or that you know you change this one curve and it's automatically changed in every other frame or whatever. So there's partly that. And that is changing too because of things like virtual sets and things like that. So there are innovations that studios are, are developing right now that are also making other below-the-line workers less relevant, which means that those workers are beginning to understand. They're beginning to catch on. IATSE over here is uh, starting to try and, and, and organize that. And then in the UK, there's an official organizing wing of their IATSE equivalent, which is the union for, um, I, I forget the exact acronym right now, but for cinematographers and electricians, grips, best boys, I'll stop. Back to which is the UK equivalent, has an official organizing wing for VFX artists because they recognize what a problem this can be. And also because the UK has always considered theater and film to be a working class job, uh, something the US is way, way behind the eight ball culturally on. The studios that built Hollywood did a very good job of making acting and directing and everything connected with the movies seemed like this entirely glamorous lifestyle that was completely disconnected from the work it took to do any of this. And as a result, 
you can always get, as as these articles mentioned, there's always going to be a bunch of starry-eyed kids who want to work in movies, who are just getting churned out every year by visual arts programs all across the country. And so burnout is not really a problem for the people making money off of all of this. They've mentioned that the financials for these houses are often pretty bad uh, in the single digits kind of thing. But again, if the profit margins truly are that bad, why do they keep getting founded by the same people? You would think at some point, John Hughes, who drove one into bankruptcy, uh, that was the one that worked on Life of Pi, um, maybe he'd get out of the business. And it's not that John Hughes, by the way. But maybe he'd get out of the business if it was such a problem. But they don't because they're the ones making the money. And the artists who do all the work don't. There's one last angle to all this that I I think is worth digging into a bit. Um, And this is already a long segment, but it'll get longer. That's okay. We'll have people cut it down and post. Exactly. There we go. Nailed it. It's in this Gizmodo article, uh, which talks about how these studios for visual effects, they aren't necessarily in one place at any given time. They sort of move around depending on what movie or show they might be working on. Uh, The workers themselves, the artists are contractors. They're brought on board for a movie. And so, uh, to quote the article, when British Columbia begins offering a 30% tax incentive, VFX Studios begins setting up shop in Vancouver. If you're a VFX artist who wants to work, you have to move to Vancouver. Uh, Wren explains that because of these tax subsidies, quote, all of a sudden, Los Angeles is too expensive. So the VFX Studios fire all their employees. They make the artists move to Vancouver, the artists remote control the same physical computer they had in Los Angeles, but upend their entire lives, and now they're Canadian residents. Hector admits to having moved across borders four times in the decades he's been decade he's been working as an artist. Um, just kind of wild. Also, love the implication there that there is no worse fate than becoming a Canadian resident. I mean, not the worst thing in the world, I imagine, but still, like. We're not Canadian no. residents. There's a reason we haven't Thank up and God. moved to Toronto. You oh know? no! Don't like, give me all of that free healthcare <laughs> and child and maternity benefits. Also, I don't um, want any of that. Also, I'm glad that you chose one of the quotes where they say Hector because they usually call him H. And after a while, I was starting to think it was Prince Harry. <laughs> yeah, are Hector and H the same people? They they I'm might not be different. sure. They might yeah. be different. So it could be Prince Harry. He is, I'm sorry, interjection. He is the lamest person alive. So yeah. this would be way too interesting for him to do. That's As we true. have found out from his new book. He is just right. kind of a loser. <laughs> sorry, dude. Tiny quotes. Well, now I regret this tangent. <laughs> We've made a royal mess of this. Um, I think Ooh. we're going <laughs> to bring this segment to a close here and, uh, Again, try to clean it up in post. Um, When we come back, we're going to sort of, as we usually do on Punching Out, expand the topic from just this narrow focus on visual effects for movies to the broader world of how computers can make art better or possibly worse. Unclear. It's worse. Probably worse. Yeah. It's worse. Uh, We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, we spent the first half an hour or so of today's show talking about uh, CGI in movies and the exploitation of the VFX artists who are responsible for making all of that quote-unquote computer-generated imagery. And, you know, it occurred to me that... So, last night I watched the 2001 movie The Lord of the Rings for the first time, and... I'm sure there's a lot of CGI in that movie, but a lot of the stuff is made with like practical effects. And 
I don't want to give the impression that that era of Hollywood was any less exploitative than our current one. I'm sure all of those like extras and props artists did not get their fair share the way they should have. But the movie industry transitioned largely, with the exception of some auteur directors, towards CGI and away from practical effects, probably because it was cheaper for them to do so you can bring more out of the VFX artists than you can with, you know, practical explosions and, you know, practical stunts, just have it all happen on a green screen, much easier than shooting on location. What we're going to explore in this segment is what if you don't need even those CGI artists? What if you can get rid of all of the labor costs? Wouldn't that be cool? Would it? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. By I the way, so. I want to I point out real quick, it's funny you mentioned Lord of the Rings and extras because one of the visual effects that was used in those movies to create the massive battle scenes was the filming and then uh, digitalizing and copying mm-hmm. of extras okay. over and over again and then a process through which Weta... I think it's it's the name of the Weta Workshop, is the name of the VFX house that did it, that could add unique features to each copy of an extra. You know, like they're in freaking particularly advanced Pokemon game. So <laughs> that that's where we are. But no, AI art. Let's talk about this stuff. Because it is an absolute plague right now. Uh, might even say it's becoming endemic to the modern digital art scene. And not for good reasons. No, you may well have encountered AI art if you spend any time on Twitter. There was, you know, a couple weeks back in, I don't know, September, October, where you couldn't go five tweets without seeing somebody typing, the Philly fanatic gives a courtroom deposition, and voila, here is artwork of what it would look like if the Philly fanatic was giving a courtroom deposition, you know, and which he should. He has he crimes to answer, to answer for. His, for. Yeah, he, right. yeah, he needs to answer for his crimes. That's right. Prison <laughs> abolition, except for the Philly fanatic. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that devolved. Um, and everybody had a good time with the idea of the Philly fanatic in court for the reasons we just wonderfully illustrated here, but. There was something darker at play in the generation of that image. You darker see, darker than the Philly fanatic. That, yeah. That's that's a shady figure already. You see, in order to make an image like that, an AI can't just pull it out of thin air. It, to the extent that it has, you know, quote unquote intelligence, that intelligence is pulled from real art that has been fed into the system. Real courtroom artists you know real artists of any kind get pumped into this network this machine and now it can pump out art that looks why almost just like that artist's work and here you know crazy if you're a long time punching out listener i think you're starting to recognize oh this isn't just fun and games this is hmm not great yeah and i think this fills a niche. So this this computer generated art, like it's been touted by people who like it and think it's a good thing, including some Marvel directors, as something that's bringing what is otherwise considered a very difficult and skilled set of things to do, namely being able to draw something pretty on paper or a computer. And making it more accessible so that anybody who has an idea and who wants to be a creator can be a creator. And I'm sorry, but that's not how it should work. It really isn't. Like, everybody can have ideas, but if the answer to that is that we need to exploit people who have skills and who put in work and time and effort into this, then that's not the way that we should go about that. What you're doing is just the planet of Omalas. We're not quite that bad. <laughs> uh, my point is that it is a benefit that is founded on profound crime. 
And that's where I'm going. Sorry. Well, so I, I understand the point there because, so here's an article from the CBC, Canadian Residents. It's called Why Those AI-Generated Portraits All Over Social Media Have Artists on Edge. It's written by uh, somebody named Sheena Goodyear, which is an incredible name. If you're listening, parents nailed it with that one. That's an AI-generated name is what that is. is. (laughs) (laughs) December 8th, 2022. And it begins like this. Greg Rakowski makes his living creating detailed fantasy art depicting epic scenes of swords and sorcery. He labors for hours. By the way, labors for hours in the Canadian spelling. Very difficult to read out loud. Uh, On his freelance illustrations for major gaming titles like Dungeons & Dragons, Magic the Gathering, and Horizon Forbidden West. But an art generator powered by artificial intelligence can churn out a decent reproduction of his style in mere seconds. And you are actually shown the, the process that can happen here. You're, you're shown an AI-generated image that involves his name as part of the prompt. And as somebody who has had a lot of visual ideas now and again and has needed them for various projects, there is something intensely personal here because what it ultimately comes down to, what the ultimate principle here is, is that these images have to come from somewhere. They have to be trained somehow because for all of this idea that AI is uh, at this point, you know, it really is intelligent, that it can fix its own mistakes, that it can think like a human being, that it has real sentience. It still has to use an actual data set to do all of these things. And as a person who is not very skilled as a visual artist, but who sometimes needs images for certain projects and projects that are not making money, they're not profiting. I am the exact person that AI art is supposed to be sold to. It fills a need that I have. I am not hurting anybody because I'm not stealing outright a work that somebody made, putting it under my name and then making money off of it. It would be to have a quick reference image or to be able to put something in the background of a website or whatever, you know, relatively simple stuff. And yet it was so immediately self-evident that the way that these data sets have been constructed is based on widespread massive art theft. And this in a year where we already had the introduction and then truly uh, (laughs) Hollywood level burnout of NFTs as another massive enabler of art theft that should have really gotten people's noses working, that should have really tripped people's uh, sensors as to what was going on here. And somehow it didn't because we all wanted to see, you know, Wario being forced to testify for his role in the January 6th hearings or whatever, right? Uh, Or, I don't know, freaking Tom Brady in a golf cart on Rainbow Road because we all wanted to see that. So we all helped enable it. And I know that this is a very individualistic take on this, but frankly, one of the reasons why this has become so popular is that you see your friends doing it and then you go, oh, I wonder what that's like. I wonder if I can do that too. I know that because I've seen it in front of me. And we are where we are now with artists wondering, are they going to be able to make a living? And especially, are they going to be able to make a living working for anybody but for big corporations who might have an investment in the prestige of having an actual artist work for them. Whereas if you're somebody who wants to work for people who, (laughs) frankly, have any hint of a moral backbone or who are producing something that is good for the rest of us instead of just helping to strip the planet of its few remaining resources or what have you, you might not be able to make a living at that. And it was already bad before. We've just made it worse. Yeah, like... (laughs) The end result here is that much like uh, movies replaced practical effects with cheaper visual effects, VFX for short, they might someday be able to replace those artists with, you know, this machine that pumps out work that is 95% of the way there and cut out all of the costs associated with actually paying the artists involved, which leaves all of those artists, those people who have 
worked for years to train a skill in the lurch, you know, potentially without a job. It leaves them going from being overworked to having trouble finding work. There's an article on Motherboard, which is Vice's tech vertical, I think would be the term for it, that talks about how artists are kind of resisting this AI-fication, if you will, of their work. going to just quote from first couple paragraphs here. ArtStation, a platform that allows game, film, media, and entertainment artists to connect and showcase their portfolios, has been flooded with the same image posted over and over by different users. A large red no sign covering the word AI, paired with a caption that reads, No to AI-generated images. Artists began protesting against the platform by uploading the image onto their portfolios after some users pointed out that AI-generated art was being featured on the site's main explore page. To many artists on ArtStation, the juxtaposition of AI-generated images with their own work is degrading and undermines the time and skill that goes into their art. AI-driven image generation tools have been heavily criticized by artists because they are trained on human-made art straight from the web and then effectively remix or even closely copy it without attribution. Similarly, you're seeing a, what's it called? Chat GPT, which is able to oh, here we go. plug and play words in convincing fashion. And it's doing the same process, but with writing. It's able to take from the internet and make something that is a convincing fake, a a forgery almost. Mm -hmm. And one day a newspaper is going to have the bright idea of replacing all their reporters with it, thinking that it's just as good. Yeah. It's as you can probably imagine, it's already become a problem in educational settings and the, the going thought right now, which doesn't affect newspapers or any. Yeah. Yeah. Say it. Say it. What do you know about educational settings, Noah? Uh, you know, no more than the average citizen. <laughs> <laughs> but one of our one of my coworkers discovered it, quote unquote. We're not going to get into that part of it, and and sent it to to all of us. And what was interesting was the number of people who said, "Well, maybe this means we don't have to continue teaching writing." Uh, uh, yes, you do. Please continue teaching writing. Which is like the stupidest thing I've ever heard a teacher say. It, 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 and it was, and then they followed it up with, well, some of the, some of the same skills, right? Like critical thinking and persuasive arguments and blah, blah, blah. Those are all still necessary, but maybe we don't have to do them in a thing, in a writing, uh, environment. And I'm like, well, yeah, cause you're an economist and economics doesn't survive the second reading. So that that's I, I can understand why you don't want to put any of your ideas down on paper. But for the rest <laughs> of us who have to teach about stuff that, you know, stands up to being analyzed, it's disturbing in a way, but it's kind of interesting as a challenge because you would hope that and and the same thing with AI art, you would hope that in a lot of cases, people would kind of realize like this is basically admitting that I suck. If I need ChatGPT to write things, I'm basically saying I don't have the skill to write, but I want to be a writer. Which, to be fair, a lot of people already feel that way. That's why ghostwriting is a thing. With AI art, it's saying I want to be an artist, but I don't want to do any of the work. And we know that tons of people are making money off of AI art. Uh, just like they made money off of NFTs by just cribbing art from DeviantArt or other massive platforms. What you ultimately have is that we have a lot of people who have zero respect for the idea of art as something that belongs to the person who created it. And they are perfectly willing to just, and and frankly, I think it's interesting to note the different coverage here because we don't tend to think of words that don't come in something like a book as the property of the person who created them. We tend to think that if it's a newspaper article, if it's an essay, if it's something that, oh, or if it's like a Twitter thread, I don't know. But if it's been posted in, in something that you didn't have to pay for, then it doesn't belong to you and you have no control over it. And I understand why that's the case, 
But at the same time, it enables this idea that, oh, if this AI thing exists, they can mimic you perfectly, that you can say uh, into this thing, you know, give me a short story, I don't know, in the style of Edgar Allan Poe, and maybe there'll be some minor mistakes here and there, but it will generally get it right because Edgar Allan Poe is in the public domain, so it's fine. We don't tend to think about the the noxious part of that in, in either of these respects until it's way too late, which, by the way, is now. It is already too late. The fact that we are having these conversations now, the the point was back there, and we missed it because we don't have principal conversations about these things. We have conversations about why is it okay for me to do these things? Not for you, not for him, but for me. And until we learn a better way to discuss these things ahead of time, which we make fun of as being you know useless nerdery or philosophical fill in the noun here, it's it's never going to get any better. You kind of touched on something of that I find very disturbing about the AI art and, and chat GPT is that you can very easily create a work that you could attribute to an artist who has no consent in this. And, you know, as a leftist, I'm inherently suspicious about property, uh, either physical or intellectual. And we can see in every day how things like IP have been twisted to really punish creators and consumers both and and make it more difficult to access content and culture. That said, I think there's a difference between being a creator and then doing this kind of thing without consent. Like if I'm an in-house artist and I'm working for a big company, part of me being employed in that manner is the fact that legally my work is theirs and that's something that i have consented to via working for them and being paid to do that and we can talk about how all labor is exploitative blah 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 done that tons but all of these ai art that's not consented to and that's what these artists are are arguing against and especially if you're taking the art and works of somebody who has died and can't consent unless you believe really strongly in say and seances uh that's not a thing and and that's really offensive to take this kind of ownership over somebody else's thoughts and that's it's vile it really is like there's no other word i can think of to describe it as and and the the feelings that it, it brings up in me and, and doing this to other people. The article from a Motherboard quotes this illustrator, Nicholas Cole, who has a, a few, I think, well-worded things to say about all of this. Quote, the main thing we are asking for in doing this is for a positive policy against the proliferation and presence of AI-generated images on a site intended to showcase the portfolios of professional and aspiring professional artists. Cole believes that ArtStation's response is contradictory because he believes that AI images are not inherently original or, quote, work that either you own or have permission to publish. Instead, he says that AI art is, quote, work generated by a machine using data mined from the labor of real humans. Um, the article notes as well that, like, these sorts of AI art things are wildly popular you know at the time the most popular app on the app store was one that could turn your selfies into a fancy avatar by just plugging in you know x art style and it would crib from real works of that art style to turn your photo into something approaching it this stuff is already you know five months ago you didn't really think of it and now it seems like it's everywhere and it's hard to see, at least for me, the cat going back into the bag. And maybe that's something that we can explore in our next segment. When we come back, we're going to plug our back catalog into an AI thing, and it will generate the last nine minutes of this show, guessing at what we would have said as to how to turn this all positive. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Art. Beep boop. And, <laughs> uh, and our first couple segments today, we've been talking about... Wait, who's uh, here too? Just FYI. We heard you laughing. Oh, okay, that's fair. <laughs> In our first couple of segments today, we've been talking about um, various ways in which people are conspiring to undercut the work of artists. Uh, first, by discussing the ways in which VFX artists are being made to crunch and, you know, produce things that are not up to their level necessarily for Marvel movies uh, at ad nauseum. And in the second segment, we talked about this growing trend of quote unquote AI art where uh, your art gets plugged into a computer and somebody else passes off this image as something that you could have done. Neither of these things is good, but here in the third segment of punching out as any well-trained AI could figure out, we like to talk about positive things. So what do we got? Uh, The AI hasn't replaced us yet. Well, the first problem is, yeah, we've got the, the, low budget AI that didn't figure that out and couldn't, couldn't do that. Um, Cause I don't know. There, it's pretty bleak. Cause uh, as Noah said in the last segment, like it's already here. That conversation should have already happened and it's out in the world and people generally aren't that principled and aren't willing to think about the consequences of this sort of technology and this sort of crunch for lack of a better phrase, in in movies. It should have already happened. It didn't. And now we're kind of stuck with it. We can't put the horses back in the barn or however that cliche works. Toothpaste back in the tube? That one. That's the one. A good AI would have figured that out. Both versions of that saying. I, so I think the problem that you have here, and again, this is, this might get us accused of a bunch of philosophical nerdery here, but ultimately the question becomes, and I think some of the artists get at this in, in some of the articles, but like, these are people who want to be proud of their work. These are people who are putting a lot of time and energy and effort into doing these things uh, to a point that's probably unhealthy for them in the long run. And they want to be happy with that. They want to put good work out there. They're not making Thor Love and Thunder look like crap because they feel like it. They're doing that because they're being given unrealistic schedules and not enough pay. And there's not enough uh, artists to do all the work that needs doing. So the first point is you have to protect the people doing the work as of now. The way you do that, like we were talking about, is you unionize these workers. And that, I think is going to require a lot more. I I know we say this a lot. I know it's kind of a cliche, but it really is going to require a lot of support from people because this is a poorly understood uh, set of workers. You know, they're not the people handling cameras and stage lights and all of that. They're sitting at their computer often at home. And so a lot of us don't think of that as like a quote unquote, 72 point air quote, real job. One of the articles mentions Martin Scorsese talking about how, I'm paraphrasing here, but Marvel's production process is akin to extruding a bunch of mechanically separated chicken for, you know, a Slim Jim or something of that nature. There is no way to have this conversation that doesn't get you labeled a snob at some point. Even if what you're trying to do is stand up for the workers and the artists who are unable to make a living doing the thing that they want to do and are skilled at, uh, the response you get from a whole lot of people is basically, why are you being a buzzkill? Why are you harshing my mellow? And that's not a productive reaction. It's especially not productive when it results in this state of things becoming only more permanent. I think the other label that gets thrown around, um, and this more so from the more fervent proponents of AI art than just the people who are using, you know, whatever image generator they found is the label of Luddite. You know, the idea that if you're against this, you would have been against the implement of industrialization. You would have been against any other technological advancement that in theory made for 
allowed for the possibility of reducing work, but in reality hasn't actually reduced the amount of work that people do. The Luddites themselves famously railed against uh, the mills that they saw as at the time as satanic. They saw them for, you know, not replacing the exploitation they experienced, but as a tool to speed up the exploitation they experienced. And for that, uh, they've been remembered by history as anti-technology and, you know, backwards, you know, cavemen of the 1800s. This is not the place to make an argument that actually the Luddites were cool and good. I don't think the listeners of Punching Out really care. I, I think it might be a place to make a point that say what you will about uh, the, the mechanization of other elements of our life. What is art for? Is art something that we want to be pumped out by computers? Or is it something that the best art is always going to reflect some human's expression? Even bad art, even corporately produced, you know, schlock is to some extent the expression of an artist. And without getting to be too romantic about it, I think there's, well, that's something that AI is going to find very hard to reproduce. Well, I think we sadly have to go even farther than just saying, do we want this to be an expression? Because proponents of AI art and of mass produced stuff would argue that that's exactly what they're providing with AI art is anybody can express exactly what they are thinking and feeling and have it match their vision. And that democratizes it. And I think we have to, as a society, as a culture, take that farther step and say, I want my art produced ethically, that I want it to not be founded on theft. And I don't want it to be causing the immiseration of, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. I want it to mean something. And that matters even more than having it, I think. And beyond that, because, you know, that that's kind of the animated factor behind things like fair trade coffee and whatnot, which obviously have their own pitfalls. But I think what a lot of this ends up arguing for is that there has to be that it ends up arguing for something like a basic income, maybe not necessarily specifically that, but basically a protection that means that if you want to make your living as an artist, you have to have something that floats you through the lean times when maybe you don't sell a ton or maybe where you have to recharge your creativity or maybe where you have to take care of family members. There has to be some kind of safety net that actually exists to allow you to continue to produce. And we know that it is entirely, It. I know that there's a big myth of like, you know, economic security, uh, ruining art and that thing. But um, frankly, like uh, we, we were talking about this a little bit off air and, and Lou said, you know, if you're, if you're not good at art, but you want to make a living off of it, that should still be possible to some extent. And the reason, and this is what's going to get me called a snob, and the reason that that should be possible is because, frankly, Thomas Kincaid made millions of dollars off some of the crappiest painting on the planet Earth and became rich off of it. So if people are going to have, frankly, such terrible taste as to give over millions of dollars to terrible artists and musicians and writers over and over again, then at least people who are making a freaking effort should be able to eat and keep a roof over their heads while they're working on things. I don't think that's too much to ask. I think there's a lot of cultural and social impediments to that. But as a philosophical thing, as a principled thing, that shouldn't be that difficult. And I don't understand why it is. Our current society doesn't value creative output in the way that it should. It, obviously, there's been a sort of ideological push away from the quote-unquote humanities over the last couple of decades and towards more concrete fields like STEM to the extent that those are actually more concrete. And in that push, there's maybe been an undervaluing of art and the value of art, which 
at one point our society did actually value at one point we had things like um famously the new deal provided for artists and provided programs where you know they could have jobs making plays in local theaters and not have to worry about where their next meal was going to come from and a lot of great art came from that sort of subsidy and maybe that's the solution we land on for how to fix all of this for now we have run out of time and for this week i'm ryan i'm lou i was no up and this was punching out You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.